Well, good evening, and a, a very, very warm welcome to each and every one of you here to St. Paul's to this evening discussion on faith in finance. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Chancellor of the Cathedral, and it's my privilege to be chairing the discussion and also introducing our speakers, which I will do in just a moment. Earlier this year, the St. Paul's Institute with CCLA held three debates on what sort of city do we want, we held them upstairs under the dome. And those debates focused on good people, good money, good banks. And what came through very loud and clear in the discussions and in a follow-up survey is that the live questions for so many at heart regard the social purpose of the financial sector. There's a very clear drive amongst so many in and out of the city itself to challenge the mysterious, self-referential and supposed uniqueness of economic life by bringing it back into a humane, rational discussion about human purpose, mutuality, motivation and the common good. And in the Institute, we're wanting to contribute to this vital discourse about, really, how we become more recognisable to ourselves at a time when we understand that regulation alone is not enough, because the issues do need to be internalised, appropriated within, in terms of the sort of life that we find desirable. So if you like money is a metaphor, and monetary exchange is one of the areas of life in which our decisions are showing us who we are, what we've become. It's the raw material to be scrutinised. And those of us with faith, Christian and Muslim, have very deep wells of tradition and wisdom to bring to this international conversation that needs, I think, a real and fresh stimulus, perspective and language. Tonight is an opportunity to share those insights and beliefs with each other for the sake of learning, for the sake of friendship, and I hope for the sake of influence and of change. We're not, of course, meeting in some sort of neutral space. This is a Christian chapel, and our faith here matters to us. It is, however, I hope, a safe space, a space to welcome friends whose Muslim faith equally matters and whom we respect and love as friends of God. And as a patron of MoMA that monitors hate crimes against Muslim men and women in this country, I'm only too aware of how important safe spaces are. It was only right then to host this evening in partnership with the Christian Muslim Forum, who for several years have been showing with great commitment and with imagination how faith is a catalyst for good relationships and doing such important work as they do in revealing how partnership between Muslim and Christian can benefit not only our own faith communities but wider society. And I'm delighted to welcome members of the forum here tonight, and I do encourage you to look at their website, not least because that's how you can donate to 
to their work, and the forum is deeply reliant on donations such as ours. So now I welcome our speakers, but I'm going to be brief because I'm sure knowing them, you will want to hear them uh, a little more than hear about them. So fuller biographies of all the speakers are in your programme, but it is my delight first to welcome Bishop Peter Selby, who is an interim director of the St. Paul's Institute, a former Bishop of Worcester, and a person who's writing and speaking on issues of faith and money and debt and the common good will be known to most of you, I'm sure. His book, Grace and Mortgage, The Language of Faith and the Debt of the World, is an extremely insightful <coughs> and very timely contribution. Tarek El Dewani is the senior partner at Zest Advisory LLP, where he advises on the structuring of financial products and investments in keeping with the requirements of Islamic law. He too has written very discerning and important works, including his The Problem with Interest and his documentary, Why Are We All in Debt? Patricia Alexander is Managing Director of Shared Interest, a fair trade financial cooperative in the UK, providing financial services to fair trade producers, retailers, importers and exporters across the world. She's a member of the UK Fair Trade Leaders Forum and a member of the Institute of Directors. And Sheikh Faisal Manju is the head of the Islamic Finance Department at the Markfield Institute of Higher Education. As a lawyer and Sharia scholar, he helps many universities across the world develop their curriculum in Islamic finance and law. He writes very widely and is currently writing two books on Islamic pension and the regulatory framework for Islamic financial institutions. So, would you join me please in welcoming all our speakers this evening. Each uh, speaker has 10 minutes to start off our discussion and I'm going to be ruthless in keeping them to time. Uh, I will give them a look that would wither a fig tree uh, if they go over it, uh, so that you then have opportunities for questions and comments. So first of all, I ask Peter Selby to address us. Uh, this is a great opportunity for Mark to be ruthless with a bishop, something all clergy aspire to. Um, I really am delighted to be here, and I think this is a terribly important occasion. And uh, I'm not just saying that because it's the kind of nice thing to say. I'm saying it because I've thought for years that this is a topic that needs to be discussed uh, between our faith communities. Um, some while back, uh, I first encountered one of my fellow speakers when we were asked to be on a radio program together, and we discovered that we had a very serious problem, and the serious problem was that we could just could not find a point of serious disagreement about this subject. Um, so uh, when I was preparing this evening, I, I said to Tarek, I said, well, um, my main job was to try and find something we could disagree about. I don't intend to spend a great deal of time justifying to my Christian uh, colleagues here this evening my contention 
that the Christian faith is full of wisdom about money. Um, I do want to tell a bit my story, because not everybody would know that. Um, I think, like many people in churches, I didn't really think of the church as having anything very significant and distinctive to say about money. Uh, until um, I suddenly found myself the father of um, a young person at university at the time when the shift to loans from grants was, um, was a requirement. And I started to think what debt actually did to people. And once you do that and you look at the story of the growth of our faith, you become very clear that debt has been a critical factor in the development of our faith because it was a critical factor in the development of slavery. People were enslaved, among other things, but mainly because of debt. And therefore, release from debt is one of the biggest and most common and serious metaphors that is used to describe our relationship with God. And I want to start with that, really, God has a way of dealing with us. And it's not simply that we have learned that whole getting people into debt is a bad idea. What we've actually learned is that God's way of dealing with the world is a way that transcends debt and moves the whole world into the area of gift not just gift, but togetherness. And so uh, we are being moved by God, I believe, uh, into a world in which we are engaged in an exchange of gifts, not in the enslaving and oppressive procedures which go with indebtedness. Of course, we're up against a very big problem. We were talking just before we started about the fact that the problem about indebtedness as a way of dealing with other people is that it's very profitable for the people for whom it's profitable. There's a lot of money being made out of it and lots of reasons why, despite the terrible crisis of 2008 following, people are not really wanting to change because they see it as a really good way of making money to run the world on a debt basis. So... What I want to say as far as Christianity is concerned is that the doctrinal tradition of Christianity is deeply imbued with a history of the transcendence of debt and its move into the realm of gift. Uh, I know uh, it's not just the Pope who has been talking about the very great importance of mercy as a feature of our common life. And I know that mercy is one of, the, one of the names that God has in Islam as well as in Christianity. So I think, I think it's absolutely central. That's my first point. But my second point is that it's central for another and less happy reason. I have come to believe and I haven't done as much research about it as I should have done, that the 
bad bits of the relationship between faith communities is a lot to do with money. Uh, I know that Holy Quran is very clear about usury, and not just clear, but if I may say so, ferocious. And when people denounce things ferociously, when books, holy books, denounce things ferociously, you can draw two conclusions. One is that God wants that dealt with. But the second thing is, if it's being denounced that ferociously, there must be a lot of it about. And I have a very distinct feeling that alongside the rise of Islam is the rise of a church which failed to be faithful to its own insights about the importance of transcending the relationship of debt. And I do want to say this too. This is a Christian-Muslim meeting. But I don't want anybody to forget that the people who could speak with the greatest authority about what money has done to sour relationships between faith communities would be our Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, just not, not a mile from here is the Bishop of Winchester's Clink prison, the debtor's prison. And next to it, the Globe Theatre, and we all know what, what Shylock came to represent. So we need to deal with money, first of all, because it's a really big issue. Secondly, because it's a really big issue for our faiths. I suspect we're going to hear for Islam as well as for Christianity. But it's certainly a big issue for Christianity. But we need to deal with it also because it is souring, has soured our relationships in ways with which God is displeased. And until we work together to overcome that souring of relations by finding the, the wisdoms of our traditions leading us to a better way of living, we shall, I think, not fundamentally improve our relationships. And that's really important. So this, the fact that the Christian Muslim Forum and we here at Institute are working on this together tonight is not just important because the world needs to deal with the issue of debt and money. It's important because our relationships as faith communities and our relationships with our Jewish brothers and sisters too are absolutely dependent on getting right what has so far very often been got wrong. So I'm really looking forward to this evening's exchanges because they will be exchanges of gifts and as such they will help us to deal with a problem that has to be dealt with, with an issue that is central to our faiths and an issue that is central to the relationships between our faith communities. Thank you. So now I ask uh, Tarek, please, to address us. Thank you, Peter, for that uh, introduction. Um, I don't think these lecterns were made in the days where you could lower them. Huh? Um, so I, I can see you. Presumably you can see me. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for inviting me here. Um, there are so many issues to discuss, um, and I, I'm also at danger of repeating myself, um, probably Peter feels the same way, because we've been speaking about this now, I mean, me for 20 years, Peter for much longer, um, and we keep on speaking about it, but we don't see change. 
And this reminds me of the situation of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, he spent his first 13 years really giving one central message to the new Muslims in uh, what is now Saudi Arabia in the region of Mecca, um, that uh, one should worship God alone, that there's one God uh, who has power over all things. And to that principle, all problems relate when the principle is disregarded. Uh, so if one takes an issue as simple as greed, and greed is often spoken about with relation to what's gone wrong in the last few years, and if we read our history, really what's been going wrong for several hundred years, greed is a form of idolatry. Uh, because you put your desire for personal wealth or your desire for more power, for career progression, for fame, above the requirements of the one God who created us all, which are that we follow his rules, we're going to return to him, and we will have to account to him on the day of judgment for what we did in this life. And if one really believes that, then desiring whatever wealth or power one might get in this short life uh, is to ignore the eternity that comes after and the paradise which exists for those who follow God's laws in this test that we call life. So the, the core issue that it all comes down to is what are we worshipping? And I don't think I need to lecture people in this room so much, perhaps as some of the people who are working in our political and financial and corporate system who may have lost sight of this fact or not believe it at all. Uh, and so we need to engage with people. Uh, and if we can't convince them, then we at least need to create a space where people of faith who wish to worship the one true God or the principles that we believe are attributed to that God, at least, that we have space to do that. And we really don't have that space now because our entire global system of finance and money is overwhelmed by a set of principles that are very foreign to Islam and Christianity. If we had lent money at the credit union rate of 5%, uh, just a mile from this place 500 years ago, it would have been a criminal offence and one would have gone to prison. Uh, in those days, the honest trader was the king. You know, making honest trade was seen as something venerable. The user was in the gutter. And it's a measure of how far that we've come that today it's the usurer who sits in the plush boardrooms on the 20th and 30th level of the best buildings in town, and the honest trader who's finding it very difficult to make ends meet. And we somehow have to find a space for us, who I suspect are the majority of people in this country who care about justice more than their own pockets, to live our lives in a way that suits our values. And it is not a question of us bringing our faith into the matter of finance, because capitalism has already done that. Capitalism is a religion, and we must never lose sight of the fact that it's not a choice between our religion and some system which is value-free. It's a choice between two religions, the religion of God and the religion of capitalism. And I know, because my mother grew up under communism, I know that 
communism is as much an oppressor as capitalism. When I went to Eastern Germany in the 70s, we saw a landscape of similar housing estates where you, know, you had a choice of one type of flat built by a couple of very large organizations owned by the government. You had a choice of one supermarket, same one in every town. You had a choice of one car. You didn't really have a choice at all, in other words. Everything was directed from the top down. And I wondered then to myself how fortunate I was to be growing up in the United Kingdom where capitalism ruled. And yet now I look back 30 years later and I find actually that there's not much difference between capitalism and communism. We both see here these systems ruling from the top down. We see monopolies of all kinds. Four supermarkets dominate 75% of the grocery market. Three companies dominate food processing. A few banks exist. We really don't have the choice which capitalism promoted that it said it would give us. These are two religions. There are many others. We need space for our own religion. And in the Muslim world, what this meant in the past, it's not a theoretical exercise. We can just look at the history books and see that you can run a very successful society uh, as happened in Muslim Spain, for example, for over 700 years, where we didn't have banks lending money and we didn't have a population that was largely in debt. But we did have advanced culture. We had architecture, education, universities. We had international trade. We had libraries which had hundreds of thousands of volumes in them. So let no one tell you that we're trapped under this model. The question at the end of the day, of course, is how do we get to create this space? And uh, two minutes? I have two minutes? Um, you know, there is a big debate that goes on in the world of Islamic finance that uh, we should follow the rules uh, of Islam, the rules that are there for us in Sharia, and these will automatically produce the results that we're looking for at the macro level. Uh, People who oppose this, and there are some among the Muslims who say this, and many in fact, that we should actually look to see what makes life easy for us. So if we see an area of public policy where maybe we overlook a rule, temporarily perhaps, but we overlook a rule in order to produce ease, then we are following a slightly different methodology here. We are putting our objectives before our rules. And this is a very, very big debate, actually, in the world of Islamic finance, because so many rules have now been overlooked. I'm not here to defend Islamic banking and finance. I've argued against it very often. What we need to get from rules to objectives are two things, very briefly. One is ethics, because rule books on their own are not enough. We need people who sincerely desire justice. And this is one argument which has been left by the wayside in the recent financial crisis, we've just produced a whole series of new rules as if the previous thousand pages of rules in the Financial Services Authority rule but wasn't enough. We've produced even more now as if that would cure the situation. This overlooks the fact that it's the ethics of the people in the system that need to change. Number two, the framework. There are many good people in the finance sector who are trying to change things, but they're trapped in a framework of banking and finance which is built on injustice. And no matter what they do, they find they can't succeed. So many of them leave and find a job somewhere else. And by default, the people who remain in the system are the ones who agree with it largely.
So we are in a position where we need to educate, where we need to build proofs of concept, where we need to lobby the politicians to give us our space. And most of all, the thing that we can't do, most of all the thing that's needed, is, is that there needs to be an implementation of the law to stop overtly corrupt and exploitative practices. It is not right that people should be charged several thousand percent interest on a loan. The poorest people in society should be given enough to survive, not used as an excuse to make corporate profit. And unless we start to bring back what Peter says, this gift economy, a spirit of endowment, of welfare, unless we really do embody this within our economy, we're not going to answer the welfare problems that we have today. Uh, I think more for the discussion, but that's it for now. Uh, thank you, Tarek, very much indeed. And now, Patricia. Good evening, everyone. Um, can I just ask before I start how many of you had heard of shared interest before this event? Oh, well, many of um, I'll apologise to you now because you'll obviously know very much m most of what I'm about to tell you. So what is shared interest? Well, it's a Christian initiative which grew out of tradecraft in 1990. The initial investors came from the Scottish Church's Action for World Development and the society embodies their joint vision of a new economic order based on love and justice. The legal wording in our constitution is to carry on the business of providing financial services especially for production and trade, in a manner which reflects the principles of love, justice and stewardship, which are fundamental to the faith of the Christian Church and are accepted by many other people of goodwill and compassion. And in order to promote wholesome, dignified and sustainable employment for the benefit of people in need in any part of the world, particularly in poor countries. In the world today, 2.6 billion survive on less than $2 a day. Three quarters of these people live in rural areas and are dependent solely on agriculture with little or no access to affordable credit. Hence, smallholder farmers struggle to eke out a living. These farmers produce 70% of the world's food and need investment to sustain and grow production. At the heart of shared interest is a simple but profound proposition that on one hand, those of us who are in a financial position to do so can invest some of our money as members of the shared interest society with the expectation of getting it back when we need it. So this is an investment and not a donation. And on the other hand, those involved in the commercial business of international fair trade can borrow that money, unsecured, to sustain their business, at interest rates of which I think the Archbishop of Canterbury would approve. In doing this, we share risk, enable enterprise, and support international development. Ethical investing is, of course, believed to have its roots in religion, with the Methodists and Quakers considering where their money was being used and encouraging follow followers to avoid so-called sin stocks. 
A recent survey by Triodos Bank suggests, however, that over 70% of investors in the UK potentially hold assets which would not meet their personal ethical preferences, even though the same survey claimed less than 20% of people would put return ahead of ethical considerations. Today, Shared Interests works with people of all faiths and no faith, but we are focused on our mission of reaching disadvantaged communities, mainly in Africa and Latin America. In an attempt to ensure our lending is going to businesses that work transparently and respect human rights, we work exclusively with fair trade businesses. One of the principles underpinning fair trade is that advanced payments of up to 50% of the purchase price should be made available to producers to support them through to harvest or to help them buy raw material and consumables. We are the world's only 100% fair trade lender, forming a vital link between individual social investors and fair trade organisations overseas, <coughs> needing finance to improve the livelihoods of producers. Our responsible business practices ensure that lending is done in the best interests of artisans and farmers and contributes to their long-term sustainability. We take steps to determine that borrowers have the capacity to repay without becoming over-indebted, basing decisions on their levels of trade. Since our inception in Newcastle 23 years ago, we now have £29 million worth of share capital and almost 9,000 investors. And last year, we financed £47 million worth of trade, making payments to 64 different countries. In 2006, we opened offices in Costa Rica and Kenya. In 2009, we increased our overseas offices to four, adding one in Peru and another in West Africa. We also managed to reach many more disadvantaged communities. Direct loans to handcrafters and smallholder farmers have increased tenfold since 2006. We achieved our second Queen's Award this year, having previously received one in 2008. We were honoured to be only one of five businesses in the North East to be recognised in this way. As an organisation, we talk about trade, not aid. We are about building sustainable livelihoods, so that is why to receive such a significant accolade in the sustainable development category was so important to us. Our charitable arm, the Shared Interest Foundation, was set up in 2004 to provide training and mentoring in business and financial skills and currently is working on an access to finance project enabling people to, access, to, to have the ability to access finance. We also struggle to describe what Shared Interest is, a very confusing organisation, a community benefit society, a fair trade lender a social enterprise and ethical finance organisation. But however important finance is, it's not only about finance. In my view, it's about trust and human relationships. Investors trust us to lend to fair trade businesses and use their money wisely. Artisans and farmers are always amazed that complete strangers, people they are unlikely ever to meet, are prepared to invest their own money to help them help themselves. Giving someone the opportunity to have dignity, being able to provide for their own families and being accepted into the community is priceless. Recently, I heard a priest from the St. Patrick's Missions speaking. He's been working in Africa for 35 years in conflict areas and more recently in refugee camps. 
And after seeing mass to over 100 people one day out in the open, he said he looked around the congregation and he felt utter despair for the people in front of him. He expressed his sorrow to them, saying, you need blankets, you need shelter, you need food, and I actually have nothing to give you. And he said a lady stood up in his congregation and said to him, excuse me, Father, I'm sorry to tell you, but you are really talking nonsense. I'm 55 years old. I've lived in these conditions for many years. And we can survive without blankets. We can survive without shelter. We can even survive without food for a short space of time. But what we can't survive without is hope. And that is what you bring to us. Many artisans and farmers I have been privileged to visit talk about this hope for the future, which shared interest has given them, and how precious that is when other financial institutions had turned them away. Of course, without our investors, we would not have the resources and funds to provide these vital loans to disadvantaged communities around the world. And not to forget the staff team who make it happen by building trusting relationships with our borrowers. It is only through them that we can strive to deliver our social impact. As mentioned earlier, Shared Interest is founded on Christian principles of love, justice and stewardship. And these principles are still embedded in our values today. I hope we continue to portray them in our ongoing work with these disadvantaged artisans and farmers. And so, even after 23 years, this is only the beginning of the journey there is still a lot more work to be done. We have already set ourselves a target of share capital increasing to 33 million by our 25th anniversary in 2015. We hope we can strive to achieve our vision of a world where justice is at the heart of trade finance. As the most reverend John Semtemu expressed at the IF campaign earlier this year, God summons us to become his agents of change by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you, Patricia. And now, finally, uh, I ask Faisal to please come. I have an output this year. If I can look a bit tall, I can see me. Good evening. Assalamu alaikum. Um, my time is very limited and I spoke to Mr. Julian. My paper will be on the website and I will give you the necessary references because a lot of technical issues in my paper being academic. Uh, I will start with the first section of my lecture which is an endorsement which uh, Reverend Selby spoke about, the debt issue. It's, it's really astronomical. And why it's a problem in today's time, it goes back to the 1970s with the financial-led capitalism, which it was like a volcano bubbling and bubbling, and then it reaches pinnacle in 2008, 2007, with the global financial crisis. The objective of financial-led capitalism, which started in the 1970s, was mainly globalization to capture the whole world in the one market. And one of the ways to do that is those big corporate was accompanied by the bankers. 
I don't want to go into the history, time doesn't allow me to go into that. But ultimately, they were trying to develop financial instruments. And those financial instruments were lobbied to be given values, but in fact, they were piece of papers, fiat money, derivatives, checkbooks, etc. And ultimately, they are not asset back. There is got no intrinsic value in that. Just food for thought. Do you know what is the market, the value of the derivative market right now? Any idea? Thank you. If this collapse, where it come from? A derivative market is a market that does not exist. It is based on another transaction. And from that transaction, you derive, you derive another transaction. What if this transaction collapse? What will happen? Absolutely nothing. It's going to be worse than what we have seen in 2008. Because it's got no value. It's just been created. It's a legal construction. In the mind of the people, it has been created. That is what financial-led capitalism has created for us. And that is the monster of debt that we are talking of, which does not create wealth. It is premised on interest, on gambling, and those type of concepts. Islamic finance is completely against it. Should we follow Islamic finance, we would have not have securitization of toxic asset. We would have not have the manipulation of the LIBOR, and many other things. Fundamental principles of Islamic finance would have avoided this. In fact, there's a paper from the IMF written by Dridi, clearly stipulated that the contention effect of the global financial crisis did not affect Islamic finance because of, quote-unquote, the so-called rigidity rule of Islamic law that Tariq mentioned earlier. And some people want to change that rigidity. That it would save Islamic finance from the global financial crisis. Just to quote you, Professor Vogel from Harvard University, he said beautifully in one of his books, one of the most, most striking facts about the rise of Islamic banking and finance is that it represents an assertion of religious law in the area of commercial life where secularism rules almost unquestioned throughout the rest of the world than the pure reality. Challenging that statu quo, this is where I think ethical investment, ethical financing plays a very important role. And Islamic finance has its own principles, which you can read on the paper, which will be posted on the website. But when we talk about ethics, ethics is where there is no law and the government leaves it to you to decide what is good. Whereas Islamic law, what is good is already decided. That brings me the differences between Islamic finance and ethical finance, which we got to be very, very clear. One of the main differences is Islamic finance has some immutable principles, whereas ethics evolve with time. Islamic finance aims at fulfilling the commandment of God. This is why we have Islamic banking, Islamic insurance, because there is a law to be fulfilled. Whereas ethics, many a time, can be entrenched in humanism, agnosticism, or even atheism. So these are poles apart. Islamic finance wants to promote those who are in economics will understand normative economics, which got a moral dimension 
Unlike what Robin said, positive economics is the buzzword in economics. These are fundamental differences that we have to understand with Islamic banking. And if Islamic banking and finance is going to deviate from this, then it can be called ethical, but it's not going to be Islamic. We have to be clear about it. There are many other issues. Time is short. I remember Einstein invented a formula, E is equal to mc squared. What is it? E is equal to mc squared, anybody? Yes? Right? Energy, mass times, velocity, okay, theory of relativity. Faisal Manju came with another theory, another formula, based on Christianity and Islam. L plus C is equal to EF. Christianity is imbued in love. Jesus, peace be upon him, taught us love. Without love, we cannot do ethical finance. Islam is entrenched in haya, which is chastity. This inner bug in you when you do something wrong, your inner voice tells you this is wrong. It's called haya in Arabic. So love plus haya or chastity is equal to ethical finance. I believe that we have approximately 24% of the world population of Muslims and 31-32% of Christians, which is already 55% of world population if my mathematics is right. Ceteris paribus, in economics, I would say, leave things as they are. Of course, not all Muslims want Islamic finance, not all Christians want Christian finance or ethical finance. But suppose, with a mathematical presumption, that we have 55% of world population who want religious law in finance, that will bring an upheaval. We got to reactivate that feeling from the pulpit. Today, if Islamic finance, there are a few experts here, I can see Fazal and so on. If Islamic finance has not taken off from the grassroots level, one of the main problems is the pulpit of the mosque. It's so complicated with derivatives and this and that, that the poor Molana who is talking can't understand what's going on and he cannot put it to the public. So Islamic finance has been remaining at the institutional level. The leading country in the world of Islamic finance, which is Malaysia, at the grassroots level is only 8% Islamic finance, according to one of the statistics research made in Malaysia. But the willingness to accept it among the Muslims, I don't know about the Christian, is very high. Example, the survey carried by Ness, Britain is the first country to introduce Islamic uh, pension at the governmental level with Nest. The survey revealed most Muslims want Islamic pension. Our Prime Minister with Cameroon pushing for Sukuk. I'm sure there are research that says people will buy it. There is a market for it. This is why we're coming up for it. The research is talking about student loans, Islamic student loans. There is a research carried on for the government to develop that. So as far as Muslims is concerned, without an iota of doubt, I can tell you the demand is there. I don't know about the Christian world. So this is where I think love and chastity can be put together to develop a new paradigm of finance, provided it's done properly with professionalism. We can synergize the effect of the Christian world and the Muslim world to dismantle the harm created by the debt market and let wealth be created. Few issues that we can do together. 
in my humble opinion, is influential group. We got to set up influential group. We got to have a good strategy of poverty alleviation, like our lady mentioned early on. We can establish very important endowment for research, what we call waqf in Islamic jurisprudence. We can consolidate the existing consumer protection group to make sure what is put on the market, those manipulation of the LIBO and all those transactions, securitization of toxic assets need to be filtered. We can also consolidate a liaison with a regulator. The regulator keeps on running away, saying we are not here to regulate religion. But the question here is, if the foundation of your product is religion, how can you run away from it? It's going to create systemic risks. Bankers who are here understand what I'm saying. We can also create an awareness campaign from the church, from the mosque, and whatever is available to educate the people that there are alternatives. The Basel Committee has already established alternative finance because they know the existing system is not going to last long. It's based like a foam in the ocean. It looks a lot, but it's empty inside. There is no intrinsic value. These are just computer values being added up, added up, added up, but there's no wealth created with that. So this is where I think ethical finance, Islamic finance, we can do a lot. But we need professionalism, commitment. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to our uh, four speakers who, in their different ways, but with a united voice, it seems to me, are telling us all that you can't just talk yourself out of something you've behaved yourself into. And that actually there is a deep desire for practical change. This is not just a financial crisis, but it's a human crisis, and it needs humanity to correct it. While you are now, please, starting to formulate in your minds questions, uh, there are three very short initial responses to what's just been heard, and I ask the first to come from Elaine Halsby, please. Is Elaine here? There we are. Sorry, I didn't know I was supposed to be responding. Um, <clears throat> yes, I can just explain. I've actually just had a book published um, comparing Islamic finance with other forms of uh, ethical finance or self-described <coughs> ethical finance, um, including um, finance that comes from within the Christian tradition. Because um, it seems to me that actually a lot of the ethical finance at the present time, which describes itself as secular, is really Christian in its, its underlying values and attitudes. Um, and I think... The, um, I, mean, I think the, the biggest problem which you can't get away from, which I think the last speaker I mean, touched on, is that Islamic finance, is, the, the, the principles are laid down in advance. We know what it is. This is what God has said, if, if you're a believing Muslim. It's not up to you to make your any personal decision on it. Whereas at all other forms of ethical finance, ultimately it's just what you think. It's your own personal decision. And I, I have to say that in practice, those two things are very difficult to reconcile. Um, and because I, I think the majority of non-Muslims in this country, or, or, or people of no religious faith in this country, they expect to be able to make their own decisions. And they're very reluctant to accept any kind of religious tradition as an authority. And I wonder if anyone had any more thoughts on that. 
Okay, let's just hold, hold that. Please, please make your notes of what's just been said by Elaine. And also, uh, Chris Selden, uh, if you could give your initial response. Hello, um, my name is Chris Sheldon, actually. Um, um, I'm the uh, Chief Executive of Kingdom Bank, uh, which is a very small bank in the UK, and uh, we come from uh, a Christian background uh, developed in the Pentecostal church movement in the 1950s. Uh, we have a mission statement that says um, we wish to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by, uh, by providing distinctive savings, loans, insurance, and investment products, building his kingdom and changing lives. And I'd be interested to, I was very interested in the speaker's comments around creating a space in which um, uh, people of faith can, can worship by their, through their faith with their finance. And that's something that in Kingdom Bank um, we're struggling to do, I'm struggling to do as chief executive to create the right kind of space, the right kind of product to offer to people. And I wonder whether the panel can um, make any suggestions as to what they see is the right kind of products that should be offered in that kind of space such that we can worship with our finance. Thank you very much. And finally, uh, Okta Babuna. There we are. Thank you very much. My name is Oktar Babun, a medical doctor from Turkey, a representative of Harun Yahya organization as a Muslim intellectual. He sent his salam and said greetings to all of you. Um, he, uh, we actually defend the idea, a call for unity is one of the titles of his books. Unity of three Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which is actually in the essence of Islam. So I want to thank you for that kind of a meeting of Christians, Muslims coming together. We call uh, Christians as people of the book. And Allah says in the Quran, you find the Christians as closest to the Muslims. And, uh, as you mentioned uh, a little while ago, there's an economic crisis in the world. But the problem is, there is a lack of love. And uh, people uh, all over the world, majority distance away from religious values, from the uh, morality and materialistic thoughts prevail the world. So lack of love, Egoism prevailed the world, and then the economic crisis as a sign of the end times happened. With alliance coming together, there are huge resources of the Muslims in Islamic countries, huge resources of Christianity. With alliance coming together, good morality, there will be no economic crisis, and there will be social justice, and everybody will be rich. Otherwise, it is impossible to solve these problems. There are internal conflicts, wars, bloodshed, in the Middle East especially concentrated, but all over the world, terrorism and violence because of distancing away from the uh, religious values. Returning back to the religion will solve all these problems. And I want to say thank you for organizing that kind of events, and I hope more and more uh, will happen to bring all the Christians, Muslims, and Jews together, and uh, the uh, religious people to step forward with wisdom coming together. This will generate power, and effectiveness, and the world will return to a golden age soon, I hope, inshallah. Thank you very much. So I'm going to take questions from the floor in a moment, so please start uh, getting those fixed in your minds. But just an initial response to uh, the comments that you've just heard, particularly, of course, some requests from, from uh, Chris and some comments from Elaine. Uh, Tarek, would you like to... Uh, yes, well, on the last comment, I think the, the objective um, 
if we can leverage the power of these faith traditions, you know, we have a big constituency. We've been encouraged to think that faith doesn't have a place, uh, you know, marginalized in media and political discussion, certainly in commercial and banking discussion. But that's just a political play. You know, we have to realize that what you say is true. Uh, the gentleman at the back, that we have a very large lobby of people supporting us. Now, how can we crystallize that? That's why I say, I think, if we have proofs of concept, products, to, to bring it to the gentleman here, that people can actually see working and making their lives better, that will be very powerful for us. You know, it's action instead of talk. We've been doing a lot of talk. There's not much action. Can I just say that you know, I have been arguing that the Islamic finance movement should not wave this Islamic flag everywhere, not in the Western countries anyway. You know, it, it closes people's minds. They just think of terrorism. So what we need to do is just to deliver products that take them out of debt. I have done that. You know, I have shown and promoted products that allow people to buy houses without being in debt. And this, is, this will be a major game changer for any person who takes on that product. That kind of product will do more than a, a thousand papers and speeches, you know. Um, and, um, you know, the, the space, the last point, actually, just to, um, the space that we need to create is also in ourselves. You know, God does not change the condition of a people until they change themselves. And this is an Islamic uh, belief from Quran. Um, what we need to, to do amongst ourselves and others is create an attitude of giving more value than we take. If we put in more than we, then the whole society will benefit. And usury is the opposite of that. And that's one of the reasons that we're being so undermined. People want to do the right thing, they want to give, but the usury is sucking the wealth out of them. So they're not in a position to do that. Patricia, do you have comments about what just being said? Certainly talking from a Christian perspective, um, I guess the, for me it isn't just about finance, it's, it's about poverty and about trying to solve the, the situation worldwide of people who are in poverty and then driven into debt situations, not quite from the Islamic perspective but from a Christian perspective and you know my faith has not been able to solve that in thousands and thousands of years. But I think it's time that the senior leaders of the faith groups, whoever they are, Christian, Muslim, or whatever, need to be heard. We now hear much more from the Archbishop about um, the payday lenders in, the, in this country who need to be brought to book. Um, I see now that the MPs today are now jumping on the bandwagon and following his lead. Um, I do feel that, as, we, as was mentioned in, in the speech about the fact that 55% you know, of the world's population are either Muslims or Christians, then surely together the power uh, of, of religion should be able to, to make change. Okay, Faisal. Yes, uh, about the creation of, of space, uh, from a product design perspective, uh, we, there are many products available in Islamic finance. One of it is a similitude to a venture capital, where you can, to a great extent, mitigate the principal agency problem, or kind of theory of asymmetric information. That's one product we can talk about. So what would happen is the people 
you will take the risk, we share the risk, and that will bring certain level of revelation of information, better control over the, 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 the venture, not only giving the money as a financial intermediary. We can talk about it later on. It's, uh, we'll talk about it later on. The, the lady at the back raised the issue about ethical is not Islamic. Yes, you are right to a certain extent. Certain issues we can never compromise till the day of judgment. For example, if ethical investment decide to say interest is in the, in the interest of the public, we must legitimize interest till the day of judgment, the Muslim will never give you such a positive answer. On the other hand, uh, we are sure there are certain investments, for example, uh, we cannot invest in printing our pornographic materials, for example. We are not going to finance this. We are not going to finance maybe uh, toxic pharmaceutical products. These are type of things we can look into, right, where there are areas we have common denominators, we can work together with ethical finance, but in Islamic finance, I just want to draw your attention, very few rules are, which are really fundamental that will prevent us to work together. For example, prohibition of interest is one of them. Okay, you can trace that in the Bible as well. Of course, open to interpretation and hermeneutics. Issue of investing in products that will, will be harmful to humanity. We can, like for example, do you invest in a company which is listed on the stock market manufacturing weapons? of mass destruction. Do we invest in that? These are ground of common, common denominators we can work to. Okay. Thank you. Finally, Peter. Um, yes, uh, the thing that interested me most are in the, both in the speeches that we, the, the four of us made, uh, but then also in particularly um, Elaine's uh, first question, is what I do not, I'd like to say I don't think it's true, but it appeared that there was a view that um, ethics was somehow something you made up as you went along, whereas, um, uh, well, it was, it was Faisal who said that Islam laid down in advance uh, certain things. Now, I just want to be very clear about this. Um, there are certain things that are laid down in advance for all the Hebrew religions. Um, we, our ancestors, the Jews, uh, the Hebrews, um, had very clear rules about what would be okay and what would not be okay. And they are part of what they called the holiness code. And the, the roots of the biblical injunctions against interest, against pursuing debts to the point that, uh, that, that people had no cloak to cover themselves at night, what you could take as security, all those rules are part of what is the holiness code. And, and the fundamental backing for that code uh, is, is summed up uh, frequently as um, uh, you, uh, you must do these things because I am holy, says God, and you therefore you must be holy too. And there is a very clear identification with certain, between certain key principles and the holiness of God. So I don't think... Uh, I mean, we may need to talk about what are the things that are uh, flexible and what are not, and that would be true in all traditions. But I don't subscribe to the view that it is a peculiarly Islamic idea that there are things laid down in advance that are immutable. That's, I think we're all coming from there. 
Okay, well, now it's time for questions. I'm going to ask, uh, we'll take about three at a time, and then I'll, I'll um, ask the uh, speakers to respond to those three questions. It'd be helpful if you could keep your questions brief so others can ask questions, and if you uh, gave your name uh, before, and also uh, to stand up maybe so we can all properly hear you. There's a, a man, Hannah, right by you there. First question. Um, yes, yeah, so my question is that um, seeing what we see around um, the world and the society um, and the corruption and the injustice that's going on, isn't it time really that we should really vo uh, speak up for the poor people uh, and, and the ones that are being oppressed, you know, when they do things like quantitative easing, uh, when they do, um, when they shift from wealth tax to income taxes, all these um, uh, t type of... Um, Maneuvers, which really are stealing uh, the <clears throat> the wealth from the poor to the rich. Thank you. Uh, another question, uh, man by the. Yeah, um, oh, sorry, sorry. Can you just wait for the microphone, and we can all hear. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I want, if possible, to try and get to grips with exactly what is the difference between, uh, you know, w what Islamic finance is. Because on the one hand, Tarek, you condemn 5% interest, you condemn mortgages, and then on the next breath you're condemning 1,000% interest. We've got no problem, obviously. All of us would condemn 1,000% interest. Not all of us would condemn 5% interest to mortgages. Um, and we're talking about derivatives. I mean, there's nothing wrong with derivatives if you're using them as an insurance policy, basically. The problem is issuing derivatives. That's the problem. That's what the high risk is. But um, what I want to understand is this. If I'm going to take out an Islamic mortgage, as I understand it, the lender continues to own the property until I have repaid the loan, and there is a charge for the loan which is similar to the charge of interest. So can you actually tell me concretely how, what is the difference um, between an Islamic finance loan and a normal mortgage that we have at the moment? And um, why is it actually much more ethical? Thank you. And um, we'll take one more... Uh, I'm just trying to... Uh, the lady right next to Hannah there. Um, Kirsten Ebsen, and my question is, how does um, Islamic or Christian ethical finance uh, affect the international trade agreement that's about to be signed by Belgium? When this trade agreement is signed, it means that European countries will no longer be able to protect their own countries against transnational corporations. And if a transnational corporation is blocked in a specific country from getting what it wants, it will be free to sue a government for all projected profits that they are not getting. And there's, I'm from Canada. There's currently a, a law case in Canada for $500 million by an American company that was blocked by the Canadian government. And this is going to increase. I'm wondering how God's law will affect these ungodly actions. Thank you. Okay, so we have the first three questions. There's a very specific one, Tarek, that perhaps you would like to yeah. uh, answer here about Islamic finance and Islamic mortgage. Yes. Okay, so um, when we use the term lender and borrower, the rule in Sharia is that the lending of money must be for no benefit. Uh, and that would mean, therefore, in modern parlance, that the interest rate is 0%. There are some other rules regarding the default position 
but the, the major issue is that if you lend money, you should not have a benefit on it. Now, the way that Islamic finance is meant to work is not the way that it is working. And the reason I mentioned the situation here in the Christian world 500 years ago is because we went from a position where 5% was considered criminal to a position now where 2,000% is legal. And I mentioned that because the Muslim world is on the same path. We are gradually permitting the charging of interest and we are using in many cases exactly the same legal devices that the Christian world used 500 years ago and it's very well documented. How should Islamic finance work? You want to buy a house, I am a financier, we set up a partnership, I put in 80,000, you put in 20,000, and the partnership owns the house. You do not owe me 80,000. You own 20% of a house, you rent the other 80% from me. In Islamic law, a money for services contract is permitted. You can hire my services as an employee, you can buy goods from me, goods for services, goods for money, services for money, all permitted. Money for money, highly restricted. So in the Islamic mortgage, as it should be, we're partners, there's no debt, you rent the part of the house that you don't own, and if you want to, at a later date, you can buy the share that you don't own from me, in parts or in whole, which means that you're not in debt. Uh, so that's a very fundamental quantitative and qualitative difference. You don't, you're not under threat of negative equity or repossession because you don't owe me anything. Okay? The way it is done has, has been changed so that modern Islamic banks in the UK, for example, they will adopt what I've said, but they will tell you that you must buy my share from me over a period of 20 years, for example, and that the rental rate is linked to the Bank of England interest rate, and, and, and. You know, it's, it replicates the cash flows of an interest-based mortgage, so I can understand why people like you might be cynical if you've read the contracts. So please distinguish between what Islamic finance is now and what it should be. Remember, there's politics at work, uh, but please also be aware that, you know, we really do traditionally, our traditional scholars are in favor of risk-sharing in financial transactions, and if we did that, I think everybody can agree it would be a big improvement on where we'd been. Thank you. International trade agreements and speaking up for the poor. Um, Patricia. Thank you. Um, the reason that shared interest works mainly with fair trade organisations is to try and put some equilibrium back into trading partnerships uh, and some justice. Um, but even within the world that we work in, we see many restrictive um, trade agreements between countries and um, even f you know, for fair trade products such as nuts that can't be um, transported into the US because they're protecting their own producers um, in that country. I can't talk specifically about the transnational agreement that you were talking about but um, something really should be done about this because you know the, from our perspective in sugar there are a lot of very poor fair trade sugar producers and there is about to be a change in regulations in 2016 which will virtually wipe out their market for fair trade sugar when beet sugar will just be allowed to um, be traded very cheaply um, and so it, it, to some extent the um, a lot of the, 
European purchase agreements that have been brought through the European Union have actually exacerbated the poverty situation in the developing world. Um, and a lot of that doesn't get the press that it really should get in, in this country. Peter, would you like to add to that? I'd actually like to, if you don't mind, could I just add a bit to what Tarek was saying about mortgages? Because okay. I think it's really very important. What is really important to understand about our system of housing finance is that because lending money has been made a source of profit, it is in the interests of lenders that you should owe more. And therefore, the pattern of housing maintenance in our society is that you don't do it, the big things, you ask yourself, are we going to stay in this house much longer? And if you're not, you make it a capital transaction, which benefits the lenders, the money lenders. And, and that's why when you walk down a street and you find that the British housing stock is comparable, is compared to other countries' housing stock in such bad shape, the reason is because people are making money out of making these things into capital transactions financed as debt. I, I wanted to say that because, I, because it seems to me that it would be very easy, it's very easy if you grow up in a Western in, environment, to think that, that what Tarek was saying is purely idealistic and it can't be done and, and our system works, doesn't it, and all the rest of it. Actually, I should have thought the one thing that was perfectly clear from the last 10 years is that our system actually doesn't work, and, and, and it's producing debt in the form of uncarried out maintenance uh, on our housing stock. Okay. Would you like to add to the The gentleman at the back raised a question, maybe I can attend to that, yes. uh, about the poverty and quantity easing. Yes, you are right here. Uh, according to an article published about a few years ago in uh, professional pension, the quantity easing only on the pension industry created a vacuum of 20 billion pounds. That speaks volumes, the negative effect of quantity easing. So you are right, uh, we have to speak it more often. We're just hearing what is in the newspaper, but there are other research carried out which doesn't come under the mainstream uh, media. Regarding poverty, yes, I raise this point, one of the areas which Islamic finance ought to consider, which again, like Tariq said, they are not putting into practice, is what we call financial worship in Sharia, what we call in Arabic, ibadat maliyah. We as Muslims, we are compelled, like in Saudi Arabia, this is the law, in UK it's not the law, you have to pay 2.5% of your poor Jew, zakah, in your savings. There is no such law for Islamic Bank of Britain, for example. They will just send you a note, but they won't activate that. Don't put into practice. In the same way, if you're looking at the takafuls, where you are saving for your life insurance, for example, the Islamic version, there also there is an element of what we would call in modern economics the philanthropy or the voluntary sector. This is a very, very, very well advanced uh, leg of Islamic economic model, but this is not the forum to talk about it. So in Islamic finance, definitely we do have a very strong leg in economics, 
that is, you got your, you, in, in the conventional economics, you will get your public good given by the government or your price mechanism, well, that is from your own pocket. If you can afford it, you afford it. There is hardly any third avenue. In Islamic economic model, we have a third avenue, what we call the voluntary sector, which is, again, according to our tradition, divinely ordained. One of the pillars of Islam is to make sure the poor are being attended. 2.5%, that is one aspect. You got your awqaf, you got your will. For example, Islamic relief has gone on a very well-advanced concept of developing awqaf for poverty alleviation. I mean, there are various things, but it doesn't come in the main media. So okay. we, we are doing it. And Tarek has a, a postscript. Yeah, I mean, well, just because Faisal said that, um, setting up an endowment to finance a hospital or a school is the cheapest way of doing finance, and it was very common in the Christian world until three or 400 years ago. Still happens in the Muslim world, not as much as it used to, but it gives you an idea, you know, when, for example, the, the Coventry NHS Trust, uh, approximately two-thirds of the cost of building the hospital was finance charges from the banks, yeah? I mean, if you're hemorrhaging your wealth, of course we're not going to be able to rectify the problems in the NHS when we have to spend three pounds in order to get one of value. Okay? Peter passed me a note saying that this home financing mechanism that I described is in the shared interest of both parties to maintain the house. And yes, it is. It's a great point because they both have an ownership share in it. And one of the things that capitalism has done is that it's turned us into a nation of employees who don't care for our businesses, uh, you know, a nation of people who are involved in speculative transactions for the short term, so we don't care about the long term. And uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of subcurrents that flow from this debt-based system that we rarely uh, alight upon, but we have to bear in mind that they are very, very powerful motivators of the way that the people are behaving. Okay, thank you. More questions, please. Uh, the man there in the red top, if you could just wait for the microphone, yes. Uh, my name is Mohammed. Uh, thank you for all the speakers. First of all, I have a good news for you. I've just graduated from my master's degree in banking and finance, and I've interviewed uh, six of the uh, regulators uh, in a board level in, in the US and EU, and I've discussed the issue of uh, trust and ethical with them. It was one of my main concerns, actually. And I've come up with four points. The, the, the first point they were suggesting, and they're working on now, is uh, reviewing all the legislation and uh, laws that they, they are working on now. The second one is imposing tough penalty. We need to uh, charge all these people who are really misleading and... Uh, uh, making problems for, for our uh, money. Uh, the third thing is the culture in, in, in the financial institution have to, have to change from the, from the top to the bottom. So this is need to be uh, ensured. And uh, the, the, the fourth one and the last one is, and the most important one is, these actually misleading uh, institutions shouldn't be existing anymore. It's, it's very easy, very simple. They should go away and replaced with, with a new one and a good one. So it's our money at the end of the day, and it's our society. We can't leave these bankers and these financial institutions to control our life and make some uh, horrible mistake, and we all saw that in, in, in LIBOR scandal. There's no other reason apart from okay. cheating. So Thank you. these are four 
There's, a, there's a, a man right over by the pillar who's been very patient. Good evening, everyone. My name is Seraphim Floria, and I'm going to ask a question on behalf of the Occupy Faith uh, Forum, as well as uh, the ARC University Project, uh, which had had a relationship with St. Paul's. Um, basically, first of all, I would like to compliment the speakers because they brought uh, very interesting points in our minds today, but I would like to um, protest against the language, the financial language that you uh, adopt. Uh, I don't think there's such a thing as Christian or Islamic finance. I also don't think there's such a thing like the Muslim or the Christian world. Um, I believe um, we're all uh, people of God, we have one world, and if there is such thing as ethical finance which is motivated by uh, religion, then let it be. Um, my question is, um, how can the church, both as a community and as an institution, support the agents of change driven by the Holy Spirit? Um, obviously that is inspired a bit by the experience of Occupy movement, which was um, 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 crucified to some extent uh, out of the premises of um, um, the city of London land. Um, but also it comes out of the uh, inspiration from um, our prophets and I will refer to one common um, writing from the Koran, but also from the Bible, where Isa, the word of God and son of Maryam, says that not everyone who says, O oh God, O oh God, O oh Allah, Allah, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Um, so, I hope uh, both the representatives of the financial uh, good projects and all the religious good projects can give us uh, a response. Okay, thank you. And there is a lady at the front here. Right at the front here. Good evening, Anjuman, we're at Blackburn Cathedral. Um, delighted to be here. I'm very grateful to be given an opportunity, and thank you. We at this, at grassroots level, understand that we're in trouble. What, how do you think that we, at this level, what can we do to move what you're saying, Tariq, what you're saying in the panel? How can we help to move this agenda forward? Because at the moment, we seem to be stuck in theory and practice, and there seems to be a very, very wide gap. I can go home and say that was wonderful, Actually, I haven't really done anything. Okay. Um, what can we do to move the agenda forward uh, instead of just waffling about it? How can we actually prop uh, bring, propel change? Uh, which connects to the question over there about how the church can support agents of change. Peter, would you like to begin? Um, I, know, I know, of course... Uh, the frustration that you're talking about. But I just want to make a case for waffle. 
<laughs> if I may. Um, in other words, the very first task we have had to, to do as, as, as a, any kind of a campaign is to name the idol and name the problem that we're dealing with. Because what has happened is that the vocabulary of ethical understandings of how you deal with money has been stolen by the advocates of the present system. And therefore, it's our responsibility to reclaim the words. Yeah. So I'm simply making, I'm not at all disagreeing with, with you that there's more to be done. But I don't want anybody to go home thinking, well, it was just words. The words are very important. Because if we, can, if we can't change the words, words about justice, words about fairness, words about prosperity, if we don't reclaim those for the justice traditions of our faiths, then they will go on being used in the interests of people whose interests they're currently serving. So that's the first point. The second thing is that I, I think with regard to initiatives and how we move the debate forward, we really do have to um, be aware that lots of different actions on lots of different fronts are required. Um, I'm in favor of, um, uh, of interfaith uh, discussion about this matter so that we can share the different things that we can do to change to change things. Um, uh, I, I think that th there are optimistic signs that people, not, not of course the people who are making money out of it, but a lot of other people are recognizing that actually the language that was being used prior to 2008 doesn't make any sense. It's a lie. Yeah. And um, uh, we've got to go on naming that lie because if we don't do that, we can't take any action at all. I could, I could say more, but I, I'd like okay. to... Signs of change. Uh, I think I have given a list of seven things that can be considered, but uh, while listening to you, few things come to mind. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing at my individual level, uh, I'm just giving you an idea. India, which is 170 million Muslims, plus minus, and the main body there is all in the Afik Academy, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, I'm going to India to give a training, uh, one in Delhi, one in Bombay, for the leading ulama. Because once you, you can achieve this, you see the importance of, you call it Islamic finance, ethical, whatever name we want to call it. Until those people don't understand the shift from a real economy to a financial economy will be hitting the air. So this is one I'm thinking is training. I'm doing it in Leicester as well and uh, many other places. So I think maybe the church can play a very important role to train certain group of people to educate the people from the pulpit. That's one thing that comes to mind. The second thing which I mentioned is very, very important is to create, I won't say a thinking tank that gives you a political connotation, but a forum where intellectual debate, or I mean, 10 minutes, how much are we going to talk here in 10 minutes? But where you put one whole day on one given issue, and that is debated. For example, issue of regulation, for example. Do we use women, exploit women in advertising? If these issues can be debated, it needs to be regulated. So these are issues that need to be done with 
at the, the ethical level, we have to set the forum. And endowment is very important, both for Christians and for Muslims. If you go back in Islamic traditions, great scholars like Allah Masuyuti, for example, that Mura Mogra will know, how he got his knowledge from the endowment of Al-Azhar. Al-Azhar, the biggest university of the Islamic world, the first university, some claim the first university in the world as well, was an endowment. Darun Deoban is an endowment. And this is where thousands and thousands and thousands of scholars mushroomed. We got to reactivate the purpose of educational endowment to focus on what we want to achieve. I think it's enough. Okay. Uh, let's not lose sight of the man who was in the red. Oops, sorry, I have to describe you like that. Um, you know, should these institutions be here still? <laughs> Patricia. Well, the institutions are here, sadly, because we live in a consumer society, and I think we're talking to the converted amongst the people who are with us this evening. And this, just this week, reported in the news, was that debt um, had grown um, for the first time um, in several years since the recession. And I think that it's difficult to get rid of the institutions when the majority of the population are still fueling them using the debt that's available. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't do nothing. I think that you know there is a lot of power in the people um, who are interested in changing the current regime. Um, I'm not sure we'll do it through the pulpit. Congregations are falling, um, and. I think it has to be, it's a be small steps, it takes time. Um, you know, fair trade, for example, has been going 20 years. The people who are in it are still very relatively poor. They're just not starving to death anymore. So this, is, this isn't something that's going to change overnight. It's going to take a, a long time. Okay. And Tarek, you started by saying, you know, 20 years you've been talking about this mm. and uh, uh, there's still change badly needed. How? Uh, well, the way I handle that is that I remember that God does not require me to change the world. He expects me to speak the truth, and if I do that until I die, then I've done my job. You know, and that is actually a very comforting thought, because if other people don't want to listen, they can account to God on the day of judgment. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that I've got all of the answers. I try to speak about things that I do know, and... Um, I think we have to be patient. You know, um, the story of Noah is in the Bible and the Quran, and he spent over 900 years, I think, campaigning uh, to his people, and they didn't listen to him. Um, so, you know, 20 years isn't much uh, against that yardstick. What can you do? We have to walk the talk. Um, you know, I gradually, and I couldn't do it overnight, gave up mortgage, credit cards. I didn't support the system. And I didn't talk the language of the system. Peter's absolutely right. They've stolen our clothes. And we have to take them back. You know, the people are celebrating an increase in debt. Debt, I thought, was the thing that brought us down. And now we're supposed to clap when the debt starts growing again. You know, they've totally stolen our, our, our thought processes and understandings. And we have to reclaim them and give them to our children. So education. But, sister, if you want to do something, act locally. Get together with the local Muslims in your community. You can set up a partnership, a community benefit society, a community land trust, a community interest company. There are four legal vehicles that you can use to establish 
a commercially viable unit within which your community gathers. And lastly, uh, I go to Leicester, some of my relatives live there. There are so many mosques where the people in one mosque don't speak to the others. Yeah, we have to be united. You know, and if we can unite among ourselves, then let's unite with the Christians among our communities who are thinking in the same way on particular issues. But if we're disunited, yeah, then we'll be easy to defeat. So, and I think, and you know, probably Peter will agree, the same could probably be said about many Christian churches. Everybody Surely needs not. to unite. Sorry, I Surely beg not. your pardon, no, but no, we're always united on how everything. Naive right. What I'm going to do, because it's very, very nearly 8 o'clock, I'm going to ask the, uh, and there's opportunity after this, by the way, to, to continue the conversation, which I'll tell you about in a moment, but I'm going to ask each of the speakers to give a last thought, but I want them to do it in response to just two questions. There's a, a woman right at the back, Hannah, can you, with the green... Thank you. Uh, Reverend Allison, I've just returned from uh, a month's mission in Kenya, when we talk about ethics, don't we really mean accountability? I think well, I haven't heard a lot about accountability to the Holy Spirit, accountability to God, or even accountability to one another um, from the discussion tonight. And what I think we also need to look at is accountability of foreign governments who are institutionalized <coughs> corrupt. And when we look at where UK government money goes. Are we making those countries accountable for how they spend it? I know we had one area where money was withdrawn, but I think having been in a country now for a month, actually 11 years, um, we see how people are trying to get out of poverty. We've managed ourselves to help some. But actually, there needs to be an accountability from government. If the money doesn't go abroad, it can then stay at home to help the poor at home. Thank you. Thank you. And the man here, please, right at the front. Uh, David Dewhurst. I'm also linked with Occupy Economics a bit. Um, given the superiority of ethical finance and Islamic finance as a product, surely it should be out-competing the alternative forms, which should be gradually or more rapidly withering away. What factors do people here think are slowing down that progress, and what can we do to speed it up? Okay, so I'm now going to ask the, for the, your final thought for the evening, but to take in... Uh, if you can, please, the issues of, a, of accountability and uh, the slowing down uh, issues. So let's go, Tarek, would you like to give us your... Um, well, I, I thought I'd given my final rousing speech. Uh, um... It was very rousing. <laughs> Rouse us again. Um, the accountability, I did mention, I think, I don't know whether the lady at the back was um, maybe late. I, I spoke earlier on about accountability. Uh, the biggest day of accountability is the day of judgment. And I really do think we need that internal regulation. We can't rely on external regulation to do all of the job. At the end of the day, we have to, inside, believe there's such a thing as right or wrong, and we will be held accountable on the day. 
that's certainly what drives me, and it means that I'm look, not looking at a financial services rule book, you know, uh, as if it's the only thing, because you know there are ways of getting around it, and there always will be. So you know, internal regulation, or what people now are calling human governance. You know, human beings make corporations and institutions. Uh, we need human governance, not corporate governance. Corporate governance hasn't worked. Well, on the accountability um, aspect, I mean, ethics is, it, is always a difficult word. Is it my ethics or your ethics? Um, but we believe very much that the people we work with are our partners and try to bring justice into trusting relationships and treat people as equals. So I feel that we, as an organisation, are accountable um, to people. On foreign governments, we have, a, we have a, an office in Kenya and one in Ghana, and it's very difficult to engage in any meaningful dialogue with governments. Um, Having said that, we do believe that we need to work with people in these territories because if we don't, then no one will help them. Um, I think any movement on government would have to be done at governmental level through our British government, um, not by the small organisations that are trying to give a helping hand in territory. Okay, thank you. I think when we talk about finance... Uh if you go in the book of regulation, you realize there are a lot of school of thoughts on that. Your Greenspan, Professor Lelwin, uh, your interventionist, your minimalist, your deregulationist. It goes on and on and on. Because financial economy, as I mentioned, I'm repeating myself, our legal construct is created in your mind. And to regulate that is going to be very, very difficult. And... Uh, for example, you mentioned what is slowing down that. You mentioned this question early on. I mean, Fuzzle is in front of us. As a lawyer, he will tell you we have a lot of problem with the regulation, right? Why do you think, for example, our prime minister came up, made this announcement? Because the existing regulation is not meant for Islamic bonds. We have to change that. And this is a trillions of, of, in the same way, your legal system for example, we got the famous case, Bexinko 2004, where the court could not understand, or maybe for whatever reason, they did not endorse the expert evidence as what is a Morabaha sale. So these are impediments. And also at international law, cross-border financial law, we have serious problems with mergers and acquisition. I mean, this is on the forum to talk about those things. So it's not something that we want to do it, but we are not the lawmakers. We are the players in the market. The church also will be one of the players. The mosque will be one of the players. The universities will be one of the players. I'll just give you one simple thing, and then I'm going to stop on that. There are approximately 32 universities teaching Islamic finance in this country. It, it mushroomed the last five years. Right. I just prepared a report, which I'm going to submit to the QAA. When I scan the people teaching it, the people teaching it, most of them hasn't got a PGCHE, which is a requirement to teach in a university. There's a pedagogic side of it. And the program itself, when you look at it, they're teaching two modules out of eight modules, which is 25% of the entire program, and they call it Islamic finance, 
which again is a joke. So uh, that's another angle, what you call the pedagogical aspect of teaching Islamic finance. So it's not only law, it's not only regulation, it's not only education, it's not only cross-border, because financial economy is a new monster we have to deal with. We have to dissect that. Thank you. And a final thought from Peter. Um, democracy uh, was conceived uh, through the voting mechanism uh, as a means of making people with power and money accountable to the population. What has actually happened is that the people who um, noticed that that was happening and that they stood to lose power have found ways of persuading the public that their interests lie with the interests of the strong. Our accountability uh, is to, uh, as, as Tarek said, our accountability is to God, and that is the God whom we cannot see, and that teaches us that our accountability is always about remembering the people we cannot see. Uh, the poor, the people who are locked up in prison, the people who are in, in, in many, many respects the victims of the system that has been created. So our accountability has to do with making visible the people who are invisible and speaking for them. And, that, and what holds it, what's holding it back is frankly... The, resist, the ease with which we can forget people, the ease with which the people we do not see are people we forget. And if you don't mind, I, just want, I don't want to finish without just saying in one sentence, I think the Christian-Muslim conversation is really important. I do, however, think that whenever you have that conversation, you have to remember our ancestors in faith who as Jews have suffered enormously as a result of what has been put upon them in terms of certainly the church's wish to have somebody do the dirty work of charging interest and becoming money changers. And that's not something we have any right to forget because if we do, God will remind us that we forgot it. Thank you. It is just after 8 o'clock, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to call this part of the evening to the end, because there is another part, which is that you're all very welcome to stay for reception to make sure that the conversation that has begun here, and I stress that has begun here, uh, can have a little bit of uh, afterlife uh, in the Nelson Chamber, which is just through those doors. Uh, and I feel that, as Peter says, this is such a vital and important conversation that I, I really hope this is simply a beginning to something that must be carried forward in, in all our venues and, uh, and all the possibilities that are open before us with these people here. He, he said right at the beginning, uh, Peter, that, um, that the church has failed to be faithful to its own insights. And I, as a, as a fellow Christian, couldn't agree with him more about that. But sometimes, you know, it's only when we're with people of other faith that you can do self-scrutiny <laughs> and suddenly realize what your own insights are and be startled by the insights, beautifully startled by the insights of those of other faiths. And that, for me, is the importance of tonight. Uh, so I want to thank... Uh, on your behalf, our four speakers, and invite you afterwards, please, to a reception next door. Thank you very much. Indeed.